Artificial intelligence will introduce biases and misinformation into our education. True or false? Well, I say potentially true, and we need to be ready to counterbalance that. Yeah, I agree with her. It wasn't a just a true or false, it's both. Is it impossible to regulate artificial intelligence as it evolves so quickly? No, false. False, absolutely false. Regulation of the use of AI in education will limit the innovation. True or false? False. I think we can't let it. We have to leverage it and not block it. Again, false. And I also think that regulation can foster the sort of bottom-up human-centric innovation. Welcome to the 36th episode of the Skills Factory. Talks and ideas about skills from Europe and beyond. In our recent podcast, we've discussed the topic of artificial intelligence and its impact on education. To my big surprise, most of our speakers were pretty positive about it. But most of them insisted on having a clear regulation on the use of AI in education. But is it possible at all to regulate something that evolves so fast? Are our education systems ready for such drastic changes? Are our teachers ready? Let me introduce our speakers for this episode. Serena Sachs-Mandel, Chief Technology Officer for Education from Microsoft. Hi, Serena. Hello. And Pilvi Torsti, Director of the European Training Foundation. Hi, welcome, Pilvi. Hello, thank you, Maria. Hello, Serena, as well. AI is revolutionizing our lives, including education. Do you think our teachers are ready? Or are we creating a generation of educators who will be struggling to keep up with the machines? Serena. There's always a bell curve. There are some that are eager and embracing and leveraging. I've heard people around the world, uh, how excited they are about being able to leverage AI to reduce administrative activities. However, there are some that need training and introduction and handholding. And uh, there are always others that are resistant to change. And so are we ready? No. Will we be? A lot will. A lot will be ready. It's been a year of change. There's a lot of resources out there. Although educators tend to want to do things the same way, I think that most educators that I've spoken to are super excited about leveraging AI, especially to help them reduce the administrative burden so they can spend more time with students face-to-face. Really, teachers are really the heart of our education. Aren't we putting them at a lot of stress? First, there was COVID with this sudden digital switch. And now there is the, the AI. I think we have to be very frank here that yes, we are, and we have been as well. When living in a world that is in the middle of various technical transformations, the twin transition, but also in the middle of geopolitical crises, and also in the middle of sort of development gaps, minding still our audience that half of the population of the globe is without internet. So we always have to balance this discussion. So we are requiring a lot from our teachers because we of course, all think and believe that we need to provide our young populations the skills they need in the world of today and tomorrow, and that the school is the place for that. So definitely the pressure is huge. 
However, I think the question about sort of response, are we ready? And in particular, in the context of AI is an interesting one. And in particular, in the previous year, of course, as we all know, with the certain emphasis that has been there because of the introduction of, in particular, of the ChatGPT. And here I would say three things. One is that the responses have been very different among both the professionals, but also countries or, let's say, educational systems. Secondly, the curricular framework in different countries is so different so that it allows for different flexibility in some places, while in other places, the teachers are also bound because of the sort of external system uh, in their responses. And finally, what to me probably was the most interesting discussion in the previous year with the, when it came to sort of what is AI doing for the classrooms and for the teachers we had a professor who's been training teachers um, in different levels from early education up to the higher education. And the, the, the perspective was that, well, if you look at the early education and care, definitely there in the side in particular of the care, there is a lot for AI actually to pick up and it's already happening well with robots and so on. While then when you come to the uh, K-12 or higher education, Currently, most professors actually have more work because, for instance, to give a blunt example or simple example, let's say entrance exams at the moment, for instance, his school was not asking a motivational statement for the obvious reasons, but they actually had to interview people in, uh, in order to make sure that the motivation is actually sort of self-expressed. Uh, so we are really in a process of transformation in a way that it's impossible to say are we ready or not? And there are pros and cons. And that's why I think all these kind of debates and discussions are uh, hugely important between the teachers, uh, regulators, businesses developing new technologies. And of course, also the, the sort of research community that is analyzing the skills levels in various parts of the globe. There is a tremendous amount of pressure on the educators. Uh, and we do need to support them because the curriculum and content need to change to some degree because we need to include the AI principles, but the pedagogy, how we teach needs to change. You can't just ask a student to go out and write something because they're going to use chat GPT, right? We have to teach them the process of thinking through an outline, a hypothesis statement or a thesis statement, and then building that and citing their sources. So it's a very different process. Uh, we want to do more Socratic method and asking questions and interactive within the classroom. We're teaching instead of facts and figures, we're teaching critical thinking skills and interpersonal skills. So the curriculum and content change, the pedagogy change, but the assessment is the most critical change. We can't just ask students to regurgitate information because that's not what they're going to need to use in the real world. It needs to be demonstrative learning. It needs to be presentation or uh, a, um, a video or a, a set of something that they can show others and demonstrate their mastery and competency of the material. So that's a lot to ask educators to change everything at once. And as you said, uh, in the global context, at first we went through the pandemic and now we have the AI changes and there's this geopolitical and economic just layer and layer and layer. hundred years ago, the education system was the factory model. We were building factory workers. We wanted consistency. We wanted diligence. We wanted obeying authority. It was a very widget type manufacturing process. And now with AI, that has turned on its head. We need these skills that you're talking about. And we have surveys, we have data that shows the future is AI in the whole world. And 
what is required is more humanity skills, more individual expression and critical thinking and analysis and creativity even. People think, oh, AI is going to take over all of our creative, our, our pictures and our writing. And that is not true. It can help us get started. It can help with a draft. But it's the individual voice that's going to matter the most. Because you can tell when something is sort of mechanical and uh, versus having personal stories and personal voice. So we're going to need to help every student learn and uncover their gifts and talents, their uniqueness. And to do that, we need to change what happens in the classroom. It, it can't just be a lecture and receiving information. We have to help our students interact with others, learn how to resolve conflicts, learn how to build relationships, learn how to work together collaboratively. Those are what skills are going to be the most important in the future. And what if a teacher would say to you, Serena, that it's not up to school to teach those skills, it's up to the family and extra scholar environment? Yeah, so that's a great point because that's why, that's the argument why SEL hasn't been a focus in some areas. And I, I argue that. I think that these are going to be the most critical skills. Our job as educators is to prepare our students for their careers, their jobs, their the future of being an adult. And to be an adult, we need to be able to coordinate, communicate, collaborate, and critically think. Those are the things we need to learn in school. And so we need to reimagine the school classroom, the school day, the whole thing, because it isn't just about sitting straight forward and listening to lectures. It's about interacting, collaborating, creating students as creators of content, not just consumers of content. The creating is going to be the most important. And you do that individually as well as with, with groups. So everything needs to change and It's, it's not going to be just, you know, oh, of course, everybody gets this and, and flip the switch. Uh, I, I think, you know, policy and training, you talked about who are the people that are educating our teachers. And it's taken generations for them to even infiltrate technology at all into the educational practices. So to be able to switch and change and involve everything, including leveraging AI, it could take a generation, but I hope it doesn't. Bilvi, you worked in education for so many years. You saw that education is very difficult to be changed. It's one of the most conservative fields in our lives. So Serena just mentioned one generation. Do you think it will be one generation more or, or less? If we now sort of say loud, okay, everything needs to change in our schools, we will get the strikes of teachers union all across the world saying, well, you don't understand anything about schools. And in a way they would be right. Because as I said, many of the core skills actually are identified as important ones. I think a lot of movement has already been taking also in the society that is surrounding the schools and that has already influenced our schools. So schools don't work in the vacuum. However, having said that, I would also, of course, repeat what I have repeated in several occasions in the last years. If you start thinking about it, it's quite a surprise that our mass education system is only about 150 years old, even less. That's the idea that let's bring everyone to school. But that idea has remained pretty much the same ever since, so from the late 19th century, and it's sort of nation state or uh, a state-orientated system. And now, of course, a good question is that in this era of digital change, twin tr uh, transition, 
uh, geopolitical change, globalization, will we see some sort of really major change in the field of schooling and education as we saw in the late 19th century? So you need this sort of approach of not only empowering from top down, but the, the creating the common space. We all need to somehow tackle with these issues in our daily lives, but also in our schools. And one thing I would like to add is inclusion. We have a lot of work on inclusion these days in our schools. And, and that's one area, for instance, where AI really is helpful. So I think in the AI discussion, it's also important to remember that it's here and now. So in many ways, we are utilizing the AI for the problems that we've had for a long time, and it's very helpful. My next question will be about access for non-developed countries, for underdeveloped countries. So is there a risk that further development of generative artificial intelligence will increase the digital divide already observed in education? Is artificial intelligence going to be a tool for few privileged people? I have gotten asked this question many times in the last uh, year and a month or so since generative AI has come out. And my answer, like many of these, is will it increase the digital divide? Yes and no. It could actually decrease it. It depends on the region and their acceptance of the technology, as well as access. You have to have access to a device and to the internet. And if you have those two things and you have a supportive environment, then it could actually decrease the digital divide. So for example, countries in Africa and the country of India have aggressively addressed the digital divide from a technology standpoint, and they have policies that are embracing AI. And I have actually spoken with leaders in some of the European countries that are very afraid of the data, the analytics, and of AI. And if they resist this move to the new technologies, then newer countries, the more developed countries could actually be left behind. And it isn't just Europe. There are areas within the United States where they want to stop progress. And if they don't have access to technology uh, in mountainous regions, for example, West Virginia does not have bandwidth. They do not have the internet access. They could get left behind even within the United States. So we always have to have the access, the device, but it's also about the policies and the acceptance of using data and analytics, which is the fuel for AI. And there are countries culturally that are very uh, behind the times in terms of using technology now. And even if they were developed countries uh, in the past regime, if they do not progress in this new era, they, they could be left behind. So those, those areas could be at risk of a greater digital divide versus the ones that are more progressive, even if they're more behind. We think of India and Africa and some other areas as developing, and they could actually leapfrog and develop faster. The question of access and equality, of course, was really on our face because of the pandemic. We really then saw what it means that half of the world's population doesn't have internet, and we saw that what it means then for schooling, for education, but also, of course, for economies. And I think we are still lacking the full analysis, but we know that you had countries where school closures were over the year, for instance, and countries where they were a few months, even a few weeks. 
So unfortunately, what happened as one of the outcomes of the pandemic and, and directly related to digital levels and digital developments of different uh, countries and regions was that the gap uh, across the world really widened, the equality gap that we had been tackling for decades. So we, if we now ask, if we are really honest with our answers, we cannot but say that, yes, this is a really key question, a fundamental question. And currently, the trend is unfortunately uh, negative. And here, I'm sorry to, in a way, to say this in the presence of a person representing one of the, the great companies. But here, of course, a key question is also that what is the sort of economic model of the new AI-powered uh, internet, the Web3 or even Web4? Whether it is similar that we know now that we will have large multinationals driving developments and there will be the profit logic. Or we will have somehow more decentralized model participation of small actors, including nonprofit, different ecosystems and so on. I really personally, I and mean, based on experience, believe that this is the key fundamental question. If we sort of look at statistically the excess and the profits, unfortunately, currently the trend is not going into the direction of increasing equality and excess. Selina, do I understand well that it's not only about having a device and internet connection, but it's also about having a very strong internet connection? for the device to be able to use AI tools. True, and also it isn't just the device itself. You have to have the power of the AI behind it. So AI uses a lot of compute power and even for a company like Microsoft, and we are the leader in AI in the world. And we partner with the nonprofits and we are very committed to raising up uh, the developing countries throughout the world. We do a lot to contribute to to reducing the digital divide and helping those um, countries and those students and, and people rise up. But it does take a lot of power on the back end and you need to have you need to have a good device and a good amount of, we call it high speed bandwidth, right? It isn't just um, you know a trickle, but we do need uh, we do need enough technology to fuel this. I agree with Dr. Pilby that uh, there are concerns, but I also feel that there are bright spots and I and I am hopeful that uh, those that have the right policies and the technologies in place can actually leapfrog some of the previous developed countries. And um, I see that um, India is, is rising, Africa is rising, and these were countries that were challenged before. In fact, Selene, in one of our episodes, we had a, a guest speaker from Tajikistan, and he was an ambassador of AI in a country where very few people have access to internet, but he was believing that this leapfrogging actually is possible for a country like Tajikistan. Yeah, and of course, we have seen that in human histories, there is always the potential of new technology to help regions, countries to sort of take one step faster than the others. But unfortunately, I think currently, statistically, if we look at the globe and the access and the sort of equality question in education, unfortunately, the pandemic left us with such a huge divide that to overcome that will require such resources and also probably ways of addressing the legal frameworks and so on that they are at least not yet in place, which is not to say we should not try. And I will leave this question with an optimistic note, which is that it is also the first time that we really have the, on the world leader level education on focus. 22, we had the UN Transforming Education Summit, which was exactly as a result of the crisis recognized as part after the pandemic and this is now being followed 
up this year with the Future Summit that is tackling exactly with these issues. So we do have the analysis and we do have some countries in very different parts of the world with very different degrees of development taking the lead. I just want to say that, you know, the NEP scores, the PISA scores, all the scores have shown that even in the years since the pandemic, especially math scores have gone down. Reading has either stayed the same or gone down slightly. So we aren't doing the right things yet to even catch up from the pandemic. And I do believe that sometimes when you have these challenges, that it is the impetus for change. And it is the, you know, getting off that burning platform. We have to do something. And I don't believe technology is a panacea, but I think it's absolutely AI, tutoring, personalization, and helping our educators adopt these things will, over time, increase the test scores, the reading levels, and the math scores. So I do think that there's a need for the technology and this change. And as difficult it is to see all these test scores go down and our students kind of decreasing in their literacy and their numeracy, uh, it gives us the impetus to to attack and to address and to climb that mountain of change and adopt these technologies. The EU adopted its first AI Act in December 2023. Worldwide reactions were so different from let's replicate the model to you're killing innovation. Now, we have a representative of a big tech today, Serena, and a policymaker, EU policymaker, Pilvi. So I really would like to know your opinion about this first attempt to regulate artificial intelligence. Our president, Brad Smith, he wrote a very long paper, I think it was 40 pages, and sent that to the U.S. government. And Microsoft is very much in favor of regulation. We are so committed to responsible AI, and that is a differentiator for Microsoft, our level of responsible use of AI and commitment to it. So we believe as a company that it does need to be regulated, and we do need to ensure the safety and security of people around the globe. Uh, we want to proceed very carefully and cautiously with the right policies in place so that it doesn't get out of control. And the not only did the EU come out with uh, policies, but Australia did and uh, the U.S. as well. So, and, and there's other countries around the globe that are wrestling with this. I don't think we've seen the last of the policies. I think there's going to be iteration as the technology evolves and becomes more and more powerful we need to also evolve the policies and the regulation of it. So I don't think it's a one policy is right or wrong. I think it's going I think they have to be evergreen and continually evolving to match the changes in technology. And of course the challenge with that is that a lot of our politicians, our regulators are not as technology literate as you know, the technology companies. So I think it has to be a partnership between the technology companies and the governments to uh, ensure the safety and security and responsible use of AI. Serena, but do you think the regulation can keep up with the pace of change of something like AI? Unfortunately, I, I feel like it's similar to education that the governments move fairly slowly and, and they don't necessarily have the background. I've actually been impressed in the last year of how many countries have come out with regulation policies. So, so I'm hopeful that we can kind of keep pace, but there is going to be a lag. There is absolutely going to be a lag because the governments don't know what technology is going to come out until it comes out. And then they have to be sort of reactive in terms of 
how do we manage this? How do we regulate it? So I think there is a reactiveness, there is a lag, but I do feel like they are already demonstrating that they can keep up. Bilby, from your experience of a policymaker, are we doing enough to regulate artificial intelligence? Doing enough as a legislator, you never have that, but you have to sort of respond to the changing world. And in this case, I do think that EU took a bold leadership with the AI several years ago already, and now we see the act um, being adopted. And that has helped other countries to follow us. It's not only one legislation, but it's actually its implementation in the member states that counts. It needs to be seen what it means, the implementation, and there we will have all these details that needs to be looked at. But of course, the problem remains that the technologies develop faster than the legislation ever can. But this has been a question for legislators always. So it's not new again. The second point is, and this was part of an EU event uh, just before Christmas organized by the Directorate General for Employment and Social Rights. And there it was an interesting, I think, analogy between the, the introduction of the steam engine and all the problems it's, of course, first caused people working in the conditions where no one should have worked, children working and what have you. And then you had regulation. So I'm not saying that AI has now created something that was the worst possible world with a steam engine, but it just illustrates that when you have something that really transforms actually the ways of work in various sectors, and that's what AI has been doing already for decades, we should remember. So you will then need to regulate it as well. And then the third point is that when we look at the partner countries of the ETF, that is not the member states but really the countries east, south of the European Union, also Central Asian countries. Those countries, they are doing quite well when they purchase IT equipment, create regulatory framework, uh, but the use of those technologies in classrooms actually depending on the performance of integrating the digital solutions to the curricula and teaching methods. So in a way, we go back to our first question about are our schools and teachers ready, that in a way the regulation and technologies have been moving and now it is the question to triangulate the integration of also these solutions to the play. Don't miss a thing. Subscribe to this show on all platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, and YouTube, and share this episode with your friends. So we have a tradition in our podcast when we let ChatGPT to formulate one question to our speakers. And here is what ChatGPT would like to ask you. Some educational institutions ban the use of ChatGPT, while others cautiously welcome it. What are the factors that influence such a decision? Well, I'm going to use a case study. So New York City Public Schools, which is the largest district in the U.S. of 1.2 million students, in January of last year, right after ChatGPT became available, they very publicly banned it. It was all over the papers. They were not going to allow ChatGPT in their classrooms. Microsoft helped them understand how to harness the power of, of AI and the what I call it is moving from fear to adoption. So really understanding what the concerns are and really helping them understand what the technology is. Fast forward six months later, after building an AI tutor with ChatGPT, with their own curriculum, they then very publicly, and I'm actually speaking with uh, the person, uh, Tara Carosa, who led this, from the New York City Public Schools. I'm speaking with her at the Future Education Technology Conference this month. They are celebrating it. 
they are using it to help students catch up from the gaps that they formed during the pandemic. So you can't ban AI. Can you ban ChatGPT? Very ineffectively, because we know students have their own devices. They get around firewalls. They get around, uh, you know, web content filtering by using their own devices. So, you, so banning it is really just saying we're afraid of it. We don't know what to do with it. And I think we need to help. And, and I love Bilby, how you brought it full circle in the last question, because it really is about harnessing the power of these technologies and integrating them into the instructional practices versus stopping them. And I have seen this over and over and over, both at the higher ed level and the K-12 level, uh, that organizations that really dig in, learn it, figure out what the best use is for the technology, including driving efficiency and productivity of the educators and the staff, and then helping students use it safely and productively, but also mitigating the risk. So when we call it cheating, it's using the tool, it's being efficient and effective. We need to teach our students the process of learning and creating and doing, but we can't stop them from using tools that are going to help them be more efficient and effective, just like we shouldn't stop adults from using it. Okay, so I, I, I have uh, two points to answer to our ChatGPT uh, question. The first one is the what I thought was very interesting, the response of the International Baccalaureate Organization, which is facilitating the IB across the world from early education up to the IB diploma, which is a secondary level diploma. So in New York, there was this early response. So IB had a very early response, which was to welcome to use of any AI solutions, including the chat GBT, but with the certain conditions and instructions for their students. That, so you have to show how you use it, et cetera, et cetera. I have not followed up how it exactly went. So my first point is that when we now have different approaches in different systems, we have wonderful amount of material actually to have a look. How did it go? My second one, whenever we have a complex, sometimes also ethically divisive issue, as AI clearly is, very often the reaction actually is that let us not immediately use it or, for instance, teach it at schools. My own research background is about how civil conflicts have been taught at schools right after the civil conflicts, for instance, in the former Yugoslav region, where there are examples from the Spanish Civil War or from the Finnish Civil War, where there was it was several decades after that you actually had those topics at school. In former Yugoslavia, for a while, they were immediately back in the school, almost a year after. But then there was a decision that, okay, it's not yet history. We don't yet have the analysis. And I'm not saying that AI, again, is, is analogical to war here, but I think it illustrates that always when you have a new phenomenon that is complex and may have also ethical considerations, the school is a little bit careful in its approach because it knows that whatever is done there is taken as a sort of final word. Although I was surprised of these bans, but I understood their logic was coming from this kind of thinking that has been pedagogically quite typical over the decades on other issues. In fact, uh, on 1st of April 2023, ChatGPT was banned in Italy, where ETF is based, actually. And on 28th of April, uh, the ban was removed. So that's just another illustration of how the technology evolves and it's impossible to, to block it and, and stop it. I would like to thank both of our speakers, Serena Sachs-Mandel, Chief Technology Officer for Education from Microsoft. Thanks a lot, Serena. Thank you. I've learned so much from you, Sylvie. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thanks a million to Pilvi Torsti, director of the European Training Foundation. Thanks a lot, Pilvi. 
Thank you. I'm always a bit afraid in these conversations that how will they sound even in half year's time, but we just have to live with it. And thanks to all of you, our listeners, and stay tuned as there is much more to come. Goodbye.